Welcome to Fertility Friendly Food. I'm your host, Stephanie Velarkis, accredited practicing dietitian and nutritionist and director of The Dietologist, an Australian-based practice focused on optimizing fertility through nutrition. This podcast will bring you snack-sized episodes for you to learn, grow, and be inspired by the latest research, facts, and practical lifestyle tips about eating well for optimal fertility, helping you cut through the confusion and myths to take back some of the control on your fertility journey, one bite at a time. Hey, everyone, and welcome Back to another episode of Fertility Friendly Food, the podcast. I am Stephanie Velarkis, an expert fertility dietitian and nutritionist and founder of The Dietologist, an award-winning virtual practice dedicated to all things reproductive health, fertility, and pregnancy nutrition. And today is the second episode of our PCOS mini-series for PCOS Awareness Month, which is September. And last week's episode was all about androgens and lowering them naturally. And this week we are talking about how to get a regular cycle back with PCOS with our resident dietitian and nutritionist and expert in this area of PCOS, Candice Quillen, APD. So welcome, Candice, to the podcast. Thanks, Steph. Very exciting to be here for my very first podcast. Yay! It's so exciting. I know Kate hops on and off the podcast a whole bunch and she absolutely loves it. So we're looking forward to having you on and sharing your expertise. And I know our listeners are going to love learning from you just like I do all the time. So for those who don't know who you are, can you give us a little bit of an intro about yourself and your experience as a dietitian, Candice? Yeah, certainly. So I'm definitely loving my time here as part of the dietologist team. And it's really been such a privilege to work um, with women so far to improve their health issues uh, which I think are really underrepresented overall um, in the healthcare system. And it's really exciting to be helping people to, to start and, and grow their families as well. So I've been a dietitian for a little bit over 14 years now, and I have predominantly um, spent the start of my career working specifically in the diabetes space. And I learned a lot about you know, hormone and endocrine disorders working in this area. And it did lead me to learning a lot more about PCOS in particular, um, which is what we're talking a little bit more about today. So I think um, what we would often see is that women with PCOS being told to, to lose weight. That was sort of the real traditional message. It probably still is. But, um, you know, this is sort of 10, 12 years ago, thinking about that message and, and women were really struggling to lose weight on their own, um, which we know is a real challenge with PCOS. So I think it's really important that we're, we're helping women in this area and giving them some advice to, to combat a lot of those issues. And I guess when it comes to um, uh, the fertility and pregnancy journey, I think my journey into this space really started when I started working with people uh, with gestational diabetes, so diabetes during pregnancy. And I think it was just such a, a motivated group of women who were trying to do everything they can to best manage their health 
overall. And I wanted to learn a lot more about sort of the the whole journey through pregnancy and conception, and then certainly stumbling across um, all of the research about how nutrition can impact the health of your little one, right from preconception through pregnancy and then post as well, um, and thinking about long-term health um, for those little ones too. So that really was quite mind-blowing for me and really where I started to think, well, this is definitely an area that um, would be fantastic to to work in. And so I think I, I went on to do my fertility and pregnancy nutrition Um, study and certificate and that was fantastic and I learned so much and then I've been able to combine that with my own um, journey I guess in terms of fertility and pregnancy and starting a family Um, so I'm currently lucky enough to have two beautiful little ones so I have a a six-year-old girl and an almost one-year-old boy Uh, but it certainly wasn't without its challenges along the way and um, so in between my two kids, I had to, to journey through um, navigating miscarriage and, and all of the things that came along with that. And I guess one thing it, it did teach me was a lot about the role of nutrition for both the male and the female in terms of, of miscarriage risk and, and having successful pregnancy um, and so, yeah, I became one of those people that implemented all the things <laughs> that could help to, to reduce the risk. And um, so I've learned a lot about combining the science with the real world application of some of those things too. And, and then thinking about, you know, going through pregnancy, you certainly learn a lot as well. So as dietitians, we teach people about the optimal diet to achieve through pregnancy but pregnancy throws so many challenges at you that it is near impossible to to have that perfect diet um, and so yeah it's about learning how do we marry um, the science with the real world and teaching people to do the very best that they can with that and so yeah it's really just grown my my passion for the area and really just my desire to help other women as well through you know, becoming pregnant, through managing their health conditions that get in the way of that and then, yeah, their pregnancy journeys as well. Yeah, and an incredible, like, background and segue into this area and, of course, with your own experiences of navigating pregnancies and losses and I know many of our clients, you know, m- not necessarily have an issue falling pregnant, but it's the staying pregnant until there's a baby in your arms bit that is a sticking point. And sometimes you feel almost like, well, technically it's not infertility because I'm conceiving. And so where do I fit in? But I'm still waiting for my baby. Like it's just this very tricky spot that many people that we see find themselves in. And whilst nutrition isn't the only thing that is obviously going to be at play, it's one of the controllable factors that a lot of people want to explore to try and allay some of that anxiety heading into a a subsequent pregnancy as well. And you had a very interesting experience even in pregnancy, didn't you, Candice, with um, hyperemesis? 
Yes. So I did have hyperemesis through both of my pregnancies and also the one that I had a miscarriage (laughs) with as well, which is completely unfair. So any women out there who experience that, I definitely um, can relate to you. But um, yes, and managing hyperemesis. So for those who don't know, it's like the extreme version of morning sickness is probably the best way to put it. Um, And it's almost impossible. Well, it's it's essentially impossible to to have good nutrition um, with hyperemesis, and so it's trying all the many different things. Um, you know, I know a lot of women with hyperemesis. You know, they if you tell them to take B six and ginger again, they're going to scream. But we know that <laughs> some of these things do work, and it's about trying all the different things from a nutrition. Um, point of view and there's a little bit of research sort of coming out about in the preconception period if we can optimize our nutrition we can reduce our risk of that as well Um, and yeah so it's just it's a huge challenge to navigate but there's lots of things we can do to get some slight improvements in that area Um, and yeah I also had you know quite bad reflux at one stage and when you combine reflux and hyperemesis it's just a recipe for disaster (laughs) really many trips to the bathroom yes so many (laughs) so many trips yes yes I've had I've had my fair share of hyperemesis clients and it's certainly a unique challenge to navigate and I do find a lot of people actually shy away from dietitians when they have hyperemesis because they're like, well, I can't eat anything anyway. Like, how's a dietitian going to help? <laughs> <laughs> Very but true. We can because it's sometimes about being clever about little things like instead of you taking the prenatal that you were on in preconception, which you may not be able to keep down or swallow, we might need to change you to a drop version so you can absorb it right away. Or like there's little mm. things that we can do that – you know, they seem small, but in the moments when you are grappling with intense and unrelenting nausea, those things all make a difference. And maintaining your hydration, trying to get adequate weight gain in pregnancy and keeping you out of hospital for if possible is kind of the goal. So <laughs> it's different goals to Definitely. a typical pregnancy, I would say. Yes, for sure. But yeah, things that we can help with. Yes. Very important. Absolutely. Yeah. So for those who don't know, Candice is now consulting with us online via Zoom every Tuesday afternoon, which is and after hours, which is very exciting. And we're hoping to be able to offer some Saturday spots with her soon as well. So if you have PCOS and you are interested in a one-on-one chat with Candice to help get your own custom nutrition and supplementation plan whether you're trying to conceive or just looking to enhance your management of PCOS, then definitely reach out to Candice. She's also got a bunch of other interest areas which you can learn more about. The show notes, uh, the link will be in the show notes and you can get booked in there. And, yeah, we're excited to continue to offer more slots for one-on-one sessions here at The Dietologist. So let's get into today's topic, which is all about regulating your period with PCOS because PCOS Awareness Month, we've got this mini series going on, which we're really excited. And I've talked at length about what PCOS is in previous episodes. So we know that with PCOS, one of the most common symptoms and concerns is an irregular menstrual cycle, particularly the long delays between periods is typical, although short periods can occur and is still part of the 
diagnostic criteria. I'd say largely we're seeing people that have greater than 35 days between their periods. And subsequently, that means there's a delay in the ovulation. So if you get a delay in the ovulation, there's fewer opportunities to actually conceive in any given, say, 12 months, which is the typical criteria for people under 35 when trying to conceive. So for people that have shorter, more regular cycles, you might have 12 opportunities in a year. But if you have 45 or 50 day cycles, you might only get five, six, seven opportunities in a year. So before we get into it, Candice, can we define what like a normal menstrual cycle should look like for our listeners? Because I think if you have PCOS for a long time, you may have forgotten what we're aiming for in the first place. Yes, definitely. So a normal cycle length is considered anything from 21 to 35 days. So anything less than that, we term amenorrhea. So essentially, um, we're having short periods and anything that's longer than 35 days we classify as oligomenorrhea. So I guess one of the things that is really important with PCOS is to pay attention to those cycles and even start tracking your cycles if you're not already, just so you know on average what your um, cycle length is because there can be quite a lot of variability um, in that for a lot of women and yeah we really want to to be able to define what's happening with your menstrual cycle so that we can you know, implement some changes to to help with that and another thing is that when you make changes you can start to see whether or not that's actually working for you as well. Yeah absolutely so we're typically aiming for less than 35 days for those who are have longer cycles. And some people like, oh, but mine's 34 days. Isn't it a bit long? Shouldn't it be 28? And not everyone's going to have a 28-day cycle. As long as the what I call the cycle architecture is okay in the sense that we want ovulation to be actually happening, that we can confirm it, whether that be cervical mucus, basal body temperature rise, tracking it with a prediction kit, P-strip or at your doctor, And then also the length of the luteal phase, which is after you ovulate before your next period or potentially before you're pregnant. We want that to be at least, you know, at least 11 days or longer, ideally. Um, So that's really important is not just the total cycle length being okay, but also like what's happening in in that cycle is important because even if you're ovulating, if you're only ovulating eight days before your period it's probably not long enough for that progesterone to rise to create implantation for conception so what are the mechanisms that underlie that delay in ovulation with PCOS yes I guess a lot of the issues that come along with PCOS are really a result of disturbances to our hormone balance so if we're thinking about what's causing the delay in ovulation, we're looking specifically at our androgens, which are things such as our testosterone and also our insulin levels. And what happens with these is we tend to have higher levels of insulin than we should. We have higher levels of those androgens such as testosterone and this impairs the function of our ovaries and this gets in the way of our regular ovulation. So what it does is it interferes with the ability of the eggs to develop or mature in the ovaries and then it can also interfere with the egg being released um, at the time of ovulation as well. Wow. 
Yes, and the last episode just before this one is all about androgens and the impact it has on our body and symptoms but also our ovarian function as well. So that's really um, a good listen, prerequisite knowledge as they would say in class. It's a really good listen to get you up to speed on that. And then you've also got that layer of insulin resistance on top which isn't ideal for ovarian function as well. It's a perfect storm for those with PCOS when it comes to ovulation. There's just up against it. (laughs) But there is good news, right? So how can we leverage diet to influence ovulation with PCOS? Yeah, so there's certainly a lot we can do. And, And we know from the research that diet actually makes a really big difference. And so what we see is that Ovulatory dysfunction accounts for around 30% um, of infertility issues overall. And if we look at our dietary pattern that can actually improve our um, risk of anovulatory infertility, we know that there are five key changes that can help to reduce our risk by 69%. So that's a really big percentage, um, just making some really simple swaps in our diet. Um, and I think that's a really exciting thing that lots of women can do um, to improve their ovulation, improve their cycles, um, those types of things. So some of the things that are really beneficial, one of the first ones is to switch from animal protein sources in your diet to more plant-based protein sources as well. So we know changing as little as 5% of our total energy intake to a vegetable-based protein. So things such as lentils, legumes, tofu, those types of foods in place of those animal proteins. So instead of having, say, meat or chicken, can reduce our risk of infertility by 50%. So including more plant-based foods in your diet is a really simple swap. Um, It could just be like taking on board like a meat-free Mondays or something along those lines where we have a couple of meals a week that are vegetarian-based instead of um, animal protein-based, which is really simple and easy to do for a lot of people as well. Uh, The second thing um, that is one of the key changes we can make is to choose optimal carbohydrate-based foods. So what we're talking about here is eating more whole grain, more low GI, more minimally processed carbohydrate foods alongside also avoiding excessive carbohydrate portions. So we know that if we're eating a lot of processed, refined or high sugar carbohydrates and eating large portions of those foods, that that's increasing our risk of anovulatory infertility. So if we can choose more low GI carbohydrates, more whole grains, eat the right carbohydrate portions for our body, then we get a reduced um, risk with that. The next thing we can look at is our fats in our diet. So what we're specifically trying to do is increase our intake of unsaturated fats and reduce our intake of the saturated fats in our diet. So if we're thinking about the healthy fats that we want to be eating more of, we're looking at things like nuts, seeds, healthy oils such as olive oil, um, avocados, oily fish, those types of things and minimising our intake of saturated and trans fats that we find in things like our fatty meats, the skin of our chicken, 
uh, takeaway foods and processed foods like biscuits, cakes, chocolates, those types of things. Uh, Another really important one we can look at is eating more dairy foods in our diet. And we're specifically talking about having full fat dairy um, as being beneficial for our ovulatory health. So if we're thinking about um, eating more milk, yogurt, cheese, and aiming for about three serves of dairy in our diet each day, then that's really beneficial um, for our fertility as well. And the last of the five key points that um, were shown to have this benefit was to make sure we're getting enough folate in our diet. So folate, we're thinking about things like leafy green vegetables, beans, peas, lentils, fruits, those sorts of things. And we want to also, if we're planning a pregnancy, have a look at our supplementation of that as well. So I always say diet is number one, but anyone planning a pregnancy is recommended to be taking a prenatal supplement that includes adequate folate as well. So we'd be looking at that just on the side too. Perfect. Incredible tips, Candice. And I think the key message that I often hear from people that reach out and, you know, we have discovery calls with and they're really feeling quite concerned. You know, a lot of people get diagnosed with PCOS after they've come off the pill and are thinking about, you know, starting trying soon or want to see what their period is doing after coming off the pill because they suspect that maybe something's gone going on because they went on the pill for acne 15 years ago or something along those lines. And people often start to have this kind of freak out, which is, I mean, decently normal whenever you get a new diagnosis it can be a bit anxiety inducing that a diagnosis of PCOS is a sentence for infertility automatically and that and that alone is going to prevent you from um, having a baby but that's not necessarily the case so we can be very proactive about how we approach PCOS and the sooner the better um, because we want a long-term approach um, to it. So that's really important for people to be aware of is that we want to take the bull by the horns as soon as you're aware so that you can make these diet and lifestyle shifts. And, you know, we're seeing huge stats to say that it's a big improvement in your outcome. And those are big numbers. Like some of those numbers are bigger than medical, (laughs) what we see in medical trials. So we want to absolutely and positively put the message out there that if you have a diagnosis of PCOS, the first stop you should be making on your, you know, management chain is seeing a dietitian who has expertise in this area to help support you and build a plan for you that's going to be flexible with your lifestyle that is maintainable. And whether you conceive or not, It's still important to have a regular period with PCOS and we'll get to that in a moment. I just wanted to touch briefly on Candice because we did an Instagram live together a a little while ago about insulin resistance and the role that it plays in the management of PCOS. And I have a previous podcast episode all about insulin resistance, which I'll leave linked in the show notes for everyone. But why is the management of insulin resistance so important when it comes to cycle regulation with PCOS? Yes, it's really important, Steph. So we know that if we improve our insulin resistance, that this helps to improve spontaneous ovulation. So 
it helps us to ovulate without you know, any other medical intervention. So we know that when we see a reduction in our circulating insulin levels, so I guess insulin resistance, just for quick background, it creates um, more insulin in the, the bloodstream than what would normally be there. So we have higher circulating insulin levels. Uh, present with insulin resistance but if we get a drop in those insulin levels back to normal then this helps to balance all of the hormones that are causing the disturbance in ovulation so there's a number of hormones that need to be in the right amounts at the right time in order for ovulation to occur and higher insulin levels gets in the way of that. Um, and so if we can remove the insulin as one of the barriers, it can help to balance all those other hormones out um, so that we're more likely to ovulate when we're meant to. And we also know that if we've got high insulin levels, this promotes um, higher levels of testosterone um, to be produced in the ovaries as well. So um this is part of the imbalance of the hormones that, that come around with PCOS. So if we improve our insulin, it can help to improve our androgens. It can help all of the hormones work properly, which means that we're more likely to get an egg that matures in the ovary and one that gets released when it's meant to as well. Yeah, because that's another big issue, right, is that one dominant follicle to be ovulated. Often when people get go in for ultrasounds and they've got that classical polycystic appearing ovaries, which aren't cysts, let's all remember, they are follicles, they are eggs to be, that, you know, it's frustrating that why can't, why is your body trying to grow all of them, but not quite get one to maturity to actually then ovulate. And that is that, that cocktail of androgens and or insulin levels being too high that can create that effect for many people with PCOS. So it's important to know that just because there's lots of eggs there, if they're not leaving the ovary and you're not getting a dominant follicle ovulating, then, you know, it can kind of all, the process can all kind of get a little bit stuck um, and that can feed into that delay um, in your period as well as your body tries to ovulate but it can't quite get it over the line. Now I alluded to a little bit earlier in our chat about outside of conception why is it important to still have a regular period if you have a diagnosis of PCOS like what are the risks of okay some people are like great I've got I don't have to have my period for 50 days. This is fantastic. Like, this is great. Like, I love my life. And like, you know, when you're maybe 20 and at uni, it's probably really convenient. (laughs) So why would I want to change that? Um, But what are the risks of not having a regular period when it comes to PCOS? Yes, I guess, um, you know, it can feel like a bit of a bonus when we don't have to, to have our period for long for a long period of time, essentially. Um, but we know that that does come with some other risks for our health down the track, um, which are really important too. So one of the biggest risk factors we see um, with PCOS is the increased risk of endometrial cancer. And so what we know is that if we're not having periods, then we're not shedding the lining of the endometrium. And this causes... Um, the the tissues to grow and thicken month to month so if we get those tissues continuing to thicken and grow something can um, develop called 
called hyperplasia and this can then turn into cancerous cells. And so it's really important that we are um, shedding that that uterine lining, essentially having our periods so that um, we are getting rid of that um, that lining, that tissue, so that it doesn't start to develop into, into what can potentially be cancerous cells. So we really want to make sure we're having at least four periods a year at a minimum um, to make sure that that lining is um, getting shed and turned over. So if you're not getting that, I'd say definitely really important to, to see your doctor, have a chat to a medical professional um, about what you can do to assist with that because that's obviously one um, that is avoidable if we do manage it as well. And then there's also a couple of other things um, that can can be higher risk later on in life. So we know with PCOS there is a risk of developing type 2 diabetes. So insulin resistance um, being one of the things that tends to underline PCOS is also a risk factor for developing um, type 2 diabetes later in life. So we know if insulin resistance isn't managed early on, it's very likely to go on to, to turn into pre-diabetes and then longer term into type 2 diabetes. So once we get to type 2 diabetes, it's no longer reversible. Whereas if we're at um, managing insulin resistance and managing pre-diabetes, it is still reversible at that stage. And the other thing we see is there's a higher risk of cardiovascular disease, so heart disease um, with PCOS. And this is caused by having elevated cholesterol levels and higher blood pressure too. So a lot of these things are all um, contributed to by that insulin resistance um, and the, some of the symptoms that we get from insulin resistance as well, one of those being um, more likely to gain weight um, and also it just makes you feel hungrier in general um, too, which can, can make you overeat because your body's just screaming out to get more fuel in. And when you're hungry, you don't always make the best food choices mm. as well. So, yeah, look, if we're managing PCOS, we can reduce our risk of lots of those chronic health conditions uh, later in life. I was just about to say, don't trust your hungry self. What is that? What is that uh, line from? I think it's like a Snickers commercial or I don't know, something like that. Something something along those lines. Yeah, don't trust your hungry self, absolutely. It can be a real slippery slope. What do you think your top tips would be to someone, Candice, who's struggling with long and irregular cycles with PCOS? They're listening and they're wondering what is the next step that they should take? They've taken note of all the all the tips and tricks that we've mentioned in today's episode, but they're like, all right, what's what's my What's my first step? What's the game plan? I think the number one thing is to get some help because there's it's a real minefield to navigate and doing that alone can be really hard. You might be focusing on the wrong things. You might not be um, getting the most ideal diet based on your lifestyle, based on you know, what you do for work, what else might be happening in your life too. So I think Seeing a dietitian, um, given that diet and lifestyle is the the first line of therapy for PCOS, seeing someone who's experienced with that um, should really come 
before um, we look at medical interventions and medications and those sorts of things. And I think, unfortunately, that's missed a lot of the time and we go straight into the medical management and skip over the diet and lifestyle. But we know that makes just such a huge difference overall. So I think what we should be looking at is to work with a dietitian to help manage um, the androgen levels with specific dietary strategies that might work and that would be based on your blood test results and that's why a one-size-fits-all approach doesn't work for everybody but we can look specifically at what's going on for you um, and make those recommendations and then probably one of the main things we'd be doing is managing your insulin resistance with diet and so what we can do is things like work out how much carbohydrate your body needs each day Um, which is different for everybody and that's why we're not just going to throw everyone on the same diet per se um, to make it work and we can look at you know what time of the day we're eating we can look at um, the types of foods that we're eating Um, we're not just going to look at carbs we're going to look at your your protein choices and your healthy fats and your vegetables and and all those other things too so we would take into account um other lifestyle factors as well so we want to talk about your sleep habits and your physical activity and and tracking your cycle and all those other things as well so yeah I think the next step definitely to to see someone that can help you implement all of these things and keep track of what's going on and help you to assess whether you're making the progress that you want to be um, with dietary changes as well. Yes, the monitoring is key because at the end of the day, like I say to so many of our clients who have chronic conditions, like PCOS is very manageable and you may no longer have any symptoms once you find the right management strategies for you, but it's never really quote unquote cured as in you always have this tendency to go back to having your symptoms of PCOS if you don't maintain the strategies that got you out of there in the first place. And so it needs to be monitored to see if what you're doing, diet, supplements, exercise, medical strategies, if you're using them, are actually getting you closer to those goals. And sometimes it's easy to let all that slide when you're not working with someone. Like it's easy to forget to go get like six monthly labs. It's easy to not keep track of your period. It's easy to like let a holiday, you know, where it's normal to eat and drink differently to usual drag on and on and turn into the way that lifestyle was before. Like it's 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 decently easy for any of that to happen. But when you have somebody who's on your side who gets who gets PCOS and can help guide you, it does really make a world of difference. So I'd really encourage you to find find your person that's going to help guide you and navigate through without the, you know, there's a lot of fad restrictive diets out there as well. It's a very popular account that just promotes gluten-free, dairy-free and, you know, that's your solution to PCOS and it's really got zero to do with either of those things and there's no data to suggest it either. So if you're feeling really (laughs) frustrated about all that or you feel like, you know, your symptoms don't quite fit the classical mould and you're wondering what bits are relevant to you and what bits aren't relevant to you, then definitely reach out to us at The Dietologist. We're able to consult with you via Zoom, which means we're able to reach you wherever you are in the world. Candice would love to connect with you and help support you on your 
PCOS journey, whether you're actively trying to conceive or you'd like to have the option to one day in the future, as we said, it's still so, so important to have a regular period. Everybody listening, you know, it's important to have a regular period. It's known as the fifth vital sign for for women. So it's really important that we're always aiming for that irrespective of our conception goals and nutrition is such a powerful tool to help you on that path as well. So thank you so much, Candice, for sharing all your wisdom and expertise with us. It's been a pleasure having you and look forward to more potty episodes with your amazing brain to share with our listeners. And everybody, if you want to connect with Candice, the link will be in the show notes to get on her diary. And I will catch you in the next episode of Fertility Friendly Food in this PCOS mini-series. Episode three of the mini-series is going to be all about PCOS and fertility with the fertility specialist, Dr. Natasha Andriadis, also known as the Fatty Mechanic. And then we'll be wrapping up with a chat with endocrinologist Dr. Izzy Smith on lean PCOS. So we're covering all the bases over over this month, so I'm really excited. Don't forget to hit subscribe or follow wherever you're listening. Leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It is the number one free way that you can support this podcast and all that we do here at The Dietologist and share it with a friend. And I will catch you in the next episode, everyone. Bye.